Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn, healthcare practice group professionals, and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander. I serve as a principal in Barry Dunn's healthcare practice group. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group Senior Manager, Robin Hoffman. HIPAA compliance within the federally qualified health center setting is our focus for this episode. But before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. In a prior episode of this podcast series, We discussed HIPAA privacy compliance, including right of access and persistent HIPAA myths in various covered entity care setting types. In this episode, we're taking advantage of the specialized knowledge and experience of a colleague, Robin Hoffman, who served as a compliance and privacy officer for an FQHC to learn about operationalizing HIPAA compliance in that particular setting. Thanks for taking the time to join the podcast, Robin. Before we jump into our discussion, would you share a bit about your professional background and the type of services you provide for Barry Dunn's clients? Thanks, Regina. Happy to do so. During my career, I've had over 20 years of experience in primary healthcare settings in Connecticut and in Kentucky. My roles have spanned reception and front office management, in addition to clinical positions as a registered nurse a chief nurse, and a community health clinical nurse specialist. As a primary health care administrator, I served as the ambulatory care administrator at an urban teaching institution in Connecticut and as a site director for multiple locations at Connecticut's largest federally qualified health center. I've been certified in healthcare compliance by the Healthcare Compliance Association since March of 2010. Immediately prior to joining Barry Dunn, I served for over six years as the Corporate Compliance Officer at a Connecticut-based federally qualified health center. In that health center, I launched the role of Corporate Compliance Officer. I chaired the Compliance Committee I was responsible for the development of the annual corporate compliance work plan and for presenting that work plan to the board of directors for their inputs and approval. Starting in 2018, following a change in the health center's chain of command, the work of the HIPAA privacy officer was it became administered by compliance. Thanks, Robin. Now, I know that you regularly read the information posted by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights on their website. Um, so we can kind of get some context for this discussion. 
Um, has the HHS OCR undertaken any enforcement actions that focused on FQHCs uh, that you'd like to point out uh, to any FQHC administrators or compliance and privacy officers that may be listening and perhaps think that the, uh, the OCR doesn't, um, quote, investigate or go after um, FQHCs? Thanks, Regina. Yes, there have been two Office for Civil Rights settlements that pertain specifically to federally qualified health centers. The first case that I'm going to talk about is most recent, and it was posted by the Office for Civil Rights in its press release on July 23rd, 2020. The OCR reported that Metro Community Health Services, which does business as Agape Health Services, agreed to pay $25,000 and adopt a corrective action plan to settle potential violations of the HIPAA security rule. Metro is a federally qualified health center that provides a variety of discounted medical services to the underserved population in rural North Carolina. It was interesting in reading this case that the Office for Civil Rights stated that the facts of the service population were taken into account when the OCR reached its agreement with Agape. This case began on June 9th of 2011, and I kind of want to underline that the case started in 2011. I think that's um, something to be mindful of. Metro at that time had filed a breach report regarding the impermissible disclosure of protected health information to an unknown email account. This breach affected a little over 1,200 patients. The OCR's investigation revealed long-standing systemic non-compliance with the HIPAA security rule. Specifically, this health center failed to conduct any risk analyses, failed to implement any HIPAA security policies and procedures, the HIPAA the security rule, and neglected to provide workforce members with security awareness training until 2016. Again, I want to stress, this issue was initially noted in 2011, but the training around security awareness did not take place until 2016. In publishing this settlement, the Office for Civil Rights Director said, healthcare providers owe it to their patients to comply with the HIPAA rules. When informed of potential HIPAA violations, providers owe it to their patients to quickly address problem areas to safeguard individuals' health information. That's a really great example of a recent case uh, of enforcement by the OCR. Was that a one-off or are there any other cases or examples? It's certainly not a one-off, Regina. The initial case that was posted by the Office for Civil Rights was posted on April 12th of 2017. This case was based on the lack of a security management process to safeguard electronic protected health information. Metro Community Provider Network agreed to settle potential noncompliance with the HIPAA privacy and security rules by paying $400,000. 
and implementing a corrective action plan. With this settlement amount, again, the Office for Civil Rights did consider this health center status as a federally qualified health center while balancing the significance of the violation with the health center's ability to maintain sufficient financial standing to ensure the provision of ongoing patient care. This health center provides primary medical and dental care. It has pharmacies, social services, and behavioral health services. And these services are provided throughout metropolitan Denver, Colorado to approximately 43,000 patients per year. The history of this case, which again was posted by the OCR in 2017, actually began on January 27th of 2012. At that time, the health center filed a breach report with the OCR indicating that a hacker had accessed employees' email accounts and obtained the uh, EPHI for 3,200 patients through a phishing incident. The OCR's investigation revealed that the health center took necessary corrective action related to the phishing incident. However, it failed to conduct a risk analysis until mid-February in 2012. So the case started at the end of January, but the risk analysis didn't start for several weeks. Prior to the breach, this health center had not conducted a risk analysis to assess its risks and vulnerability in its electronic PHI environment, and consequently had not implemented any corresponding risk management plans to address these risks that had been identified. When the health center finally did conduct a risk analysis, that risk analysis and the subsequent ones were deemed insufficient by the Office for Civil Rights to meet the requirements of the HIPAA security rule. When this case was posted by the Office for Civil Rights, the director stated, patients seeking healthcare trust that their providers will safeguard and protect their health information. Compliance with the HIPAA security rule helps covered entities meet this important obligation to their patient communities. Now, as I reflect on both of these cases, Regina, again, I want to stress that there can be a significant gap between when something is first identified and when the settlement with the Office for Civil Rights takes place. It's a long duration. And that doesn't surprise me as a former compliance officer, but I think sometimes other staff and colleagues may think, oh, this is something that turns around quickly. It really doesn't. Also, you know, again, I think thinking of the concept of timeliness, when we talked about that first case from North Carolina, their breach occurred in 2011 but they didn't conduct any security awareness training until 2016. Wow. I mean, you make some great points, Robin. 
not only have you kind of busted the myth that FQHCs haven't um, had these significant type of events and fines, but also the timeline is pretty stunning from um, both of these cases from when the case began until actually when the settlement occurred and the training occurred. So Robin, based on other recent OCR actions, and I guess recent is relative in our world, are there some common issues that you think FQHCs should be mindful of when it comes to HIPAA compliance in other areas? Yes, absolutely, Regina. Certainly, the Office for Civil Rights Right of Access Initiative is really important. The last time I looked, the OCR initiative has resulted in enforcement actions against 38 healthcare institutions and clinical practice settings that did not give their patients timely access within 30 days to their health records at a reasonable cost under the HIPAA privacy rule. I think it's really important to point out that these cases do not only affect large health systems and large hospitals, they have also involved ambulatory care offices, they've involved dental practices, and even the practices of some specialists who are in a solo practice. So again, it's important to be mindful, this right of access runs the whole gamut of types of providers. And these, these 38 actions that have taken place so far, the settlements have ranged between $5,000 and $240,000. And the imposition of corrective actions obviously has to take place. While I've not yet seen that a federally qualified health center has been involved in a right of access case, this is a requirement that definitely also applies to federally qualified health centers. And I would also want to point out to your listeners that you should be mindful that the current 30-day turnaround time requirement will, in the near future, decrease to a 15-day cycle. And I'd like to mention that some states already have a state requirement. For instance, the state of California has a much more stringent turnaround time requirement. So I would suggest to any FQHC, it's really important to see how your health information management department, or perhaps you refer to it as your medical records department, is currently monitoring your own health center's turnaround time for medical record request. The other suggestion I would give is take a look at your own health center's website. I will say that when I was a compliance officer at a federally qualified health center, I was checking the website honestly at least two to three times a week. You want to see that there is guidance given to your patients on your website about how they can access health records. Is it clear? Is it easy to understand? Is it current? Does it have the names of the proper individuals to contact? How many clicks does it take on your website to locate this information? And I would also state as a federally qualified health center, 
there is tremendous service that is given to individuals with limited English proficiency. You really want to make sure that the information that you have posted, whether it's on your website or whether it's posted within your health center, is meeting the needs of your patients whose primary language is not English. One easy way to really get a handle on this is to look at your health center's annual UDS measure, uniform data system, that identifies the number and percentage of patients that your health center serves in another language. You want to make sure that your release of information and your notice of privacy practices and any of the related signage for those documents are translated into the predominant languages of your patient population. Well, thanks, Robin. That was a lot of great information about the Right of Access Initiative and some great tips that also somehow you weaved in another important area of compliance and having to do with uh, non-discrimination by including that part with the uh, limited English proficiency. So as if all this wasn't enough, as far as tips goes, I think that you might have some more. Absolutely, Regina, certainly. As noted by the HIPAA Journal in January of this year, any disclosure of protected information that is not permitted under the HIPAA privacy rule can attract a financial penalty. That term, attract a penalty, that's an interesting way to phrase that one. This violation category is a broad one, and it includes disclosing PHI to a patient's employer. It also includes potential disclosures following the theft or loss of an unencrypted laptop computer. Also the careless handling of PHI or disclosing PHI unnecessarily. You want to be mindful of the minimum necessary standard. You also want to be mindful of any disclosures that might be taking place after a patient's authorization for release may have expired. In looking at the Office of Civil Rights website, there are some astounding settlements, financial settlements that have taken place. And a lot of these are really interesting because they deal with information that's being released um, by a health system or a hospital, for instance. Um, there was one case from Memorial Hermann Medical System in Texas, a $2.4 million settlement for disclosing a patient's PHI in a press release. That's one of those things where you go, gee, how did that one pass proofreading? <laughs> there was also with New York Presbyterian Hospital, a $2.2 million penalty for filming patients without the patients giving their consent. Also, the same thing has happened where people are filming patients without obtaining patients' consent in places such as uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital here in New England and also the Boston Medical Center. I would again remind everybody, it's really, really important as your health center is scheduling media events are your health center's media release forms up to date? Also, I would say, 
make sure that your staff really understand that they shouldn't be using their cell phone to take photos of patients. Sometimes those things happen. You need to really, really make sure that people understand patients must give their consent for any filming or any photography. So Robin, it sounds like with respect to these inadvertent disclosures, um, especially with marketing and, and filming patients that we're really back to a basic of like policies and procedures and, and having everybody be aware of that. Does that sound about right? Absolutely, Regina. It's always critical to have policies and procedures, but it's equally, if not more critical for the staff to understand them and know how to uphold them. There was a uh, case that was just on the Office for Civil Rights website on August 23rd. There was a $300,640 settlement against a New England-based dermatology office. Uh-oh. So I'm going to guess this is in the category of improper disposal of PHI, which, frankly, um, you know, you hear about it less and less now in 2022 than maybe you heard about it 10 or even five years ago. But uh, spoiler alert, local news outlets really do like to respond to a report of medical records and dumpsters. Um, and yes, <laughs> that still does happen, apparently. So um, what do you what do you have about improper disposal of PHI? Absolutely. This case that was just posted by the Office for Civil Rights during August of this year goes back to something that happened on May 11th in 2021. The Dermatology Office filed a breach report with the Office for Civil Rights stating that empty specimen containers with protected health information on the labels were placed in a garbage bin in their parking lot. The container's labels contain patient names, dates of birth, the dates of sample collection, and the name of the provider who took the specimen. The investigation was conducted by New England Regional Office of the Office for Civil Rights, and they found potential violations of the privacy rule included the impermissible use and disclosure of PHI, and the failure to maintain appropriate safeguards to protect the privacy of PHI. When this case was posted on the OCR's website, the acting director said, improper disposal of PHI creates an unnecessary risk to patient privacy. HIPAA-regulated entities should take every step to ensure that safeguards are in place when disposing of patient information to keep it from being accessible by the public. Now, Regina, I have to admit, when I read this one, it really surprised me. As you alluded to, this whole thing of disposing of PHI was something one might have anticipated seeing more of in the past. And I really started to think about this one. And I think this is a really important reminder when we think about what's happened in the world of healthcare delivery since the pandemic started, there has been tremendous staff turnover. And as you know, with staff turnover, frequently there can be loss of what I'll call institutional knowledge. 
So when I posted a link to this case on my own LinkedIn site last week, I quipped, what's in your dumpster? As a compliance officer, this is a critical question. I am a believer that if you're a compliance officer, you need to walk through your health center. You need to walk around your health center. You be, need to be looking what's going into garbage cans, what's going into recycle bins, what's literally fluttering in the parking lot adjacent to the dumpster. Robin, I couldn't agree more. And I think as uh, mission driven as health centers are, um, health centers aren't immune to having turnover of staff. And, and frankly, just honestly, I don't, staff don't do these things on purpose, right? It's just, um, they're trying to get through their day. And so, uh, with that in mind, um, Robin, can you recommend any key HIPAA related actions that, you know, an FQHC should be addressing in its corporate compliance plan to maybe mitigate some of these risks? Absolutely, Regina. I really recommend that either the compliance officer or the privacy officer should conduct what I call live privacy rounds on a periodic basis. By, again, I call it boots to the ground, going out to the clinical floors, the clinical settings to really see how PHI and PII is safeguarded. Real time is really important. For instance, what I talked about with that case from dermatology dealt with clinical, but you need to also be thinking about PII. In other words, are there tickets, receipts from transactions that have taken place at the checkout area? That's really important. That whole rounding process, in my opinion, really, it really increases your approachability. It really gives staff an opportunity to raise questions. As you just said, I really truly believe people want to do the right thing. People frequently have questions about what is the right thing. So I think by making these live rounds, it really gives a chance for a um, an opportunity for a conversation in a non-confrontational sort of what can I help you with today opportunity. Another thing which I think is really, really critical, and I realize that when health centers are orienting new staff, that time is really of the essence. But personally, I am a strong advocate for providing live training about privacy with each orientation cohort. And when I say each cohort, I mean all members coming into the health center. It is as important for your team from facilities, or if your health center has its own house cleaning service, it's as important for them to know this information as all of your clinical support staff or your clinicians. I think by meeting live with the new staff, it puts a face and a voice to the name. And I think it increases the likelihood that if someone does have a question or if they immediately think that there's been an inadvertent disclosure, it makes it that much more speedy that the staff member can contact either the compliance officer or the privacy officer as soon as possible. I think that's really critical. 
The other thing that we talked about just a few minutes ago was the importance of policies and procedures. And those for HIPAA, whether it's for privacy or security, they need to be looked at annually. I realize that your health center may have rules for other types of policies that may be for maybe an every other year or up to every three years review, but HIPAA privacy and security have to be reviewed annually. And there are lots of good reasons for doing so. For instance, in Connecticut, all contracts with state agencies have a requirement that HIPAA policies have to be reviewed on an annual basis. The other thing I will add about that annual review is you may identify that something has changed. You can go ahead and get that done as quickly as possible. The last thing that one would want to do is if there is a breach that needs to be reported to the Office of Civil Rights is to have a mad scramble to look at policies and procedures that perhaps have not been looked at in several years or that don't actually resemble what the workflows are in the health center currently. So you got a really narrow window of time if you have to go to the OCR. So you want to make sure everything is set and good. Also on the sort of concept of time, it's really important on an annual basis that if your health center has had any breaches that involve fewer than 500 patients, you need to be going on to the Office of Civil Rights portal every year. I know, for instance, this year, the deadline was March the 1st. There's a little bit of variability. It's usually in February of each year. You need to report out on any breaches that involved fewer than 500 patients to the portal, and that's for the preceding calendar year. So again, time is really of the essence on that. You want to make sure that's happened. So again, God forbid, if there ever is a breach, that the OCR can see that you have been in good standing and you've really been monitoring breaches. These are some great tips, Robin. I just want to highlight really quickly there your policies and procedures, um, your comments about if you have to send those in to the OCR as a result of a data request because there's been a um, right of access complaint. I've worked with organizations that um, hadn't far thought that for far down the road and uh I help them send in their policies and procedures, and sometimes they hadn't been reviewed or updated in several years. And at the time, you get that data request a little too late to update it, right? Um, so keeping on top of that is really important. Um, the other thing is I know you're going to talk about it soon, and I'm just going to confess I was delighted when you told me you were going to talk about my favorite compliance adjacent, the cousin to compliance as a former HIM director. So not to spoil your thunder on the next one, but... Um, Based on your experience, um, some more HIPAA-related tips um, for the an FQHC compliance officer. Um, go for it. Absolutely. I think one of the first tips that I have is look at the compliance committee in your health center. Is either your health information management director, or if you're in a smaller federally qualified health center, this person might be known as the medical records manager. Is that individual a member of your compliance committee? Also in your health center, is the IT director involved in that committee? You really, really want to have those folks at the table on your compliance committee. 
you really want to reach out to, I'll use the term health information management director, just, but again, it could be your medical records manager. You want to see whether your health center stores any archived paper charts. And, you know, that's very possible, believe it or not. Um, there could be old records somewhere in the building, somewhere in the basement. And if you do have old paper records on site, you want to confirm that there's an inventory. In other words, if someone were to break into your basement and steal boxes of charts, do you know whose charts got stolen? Inventory, really critical. And you want to make sure that archived records are securely maintained, but they, again, need to be accessible to your health information management staff. But you want to make sure that they are securely stored. If you're using an off-site storage vendor, and some health centers do, you really want to confirm that the health center's ability to retrieve a record can be done in a timely manner. So if you need to get a record from an off-site storage, how quickly can they accommodate your need for that record? Also, back to the concept of old paper medical records, you really want to talk with your health information management director to see what are your policies and procedures that focus on purging of paper medical records. You really want to make sure that those policies around purging are compliant with your state's requirement for documentation of medical records. That's really, really critical. Another idea that I'd have, we've talked a little bit about ways to really engage staff so that staff feel like they can learn things in digestible manners and that it's, it's not painful, if you will. So one of the approaches that I recommend is trying to build HIPAA-related components into your health center's annual celebration of National Healthcare Compliance Week. So at my former workplace, what we would do is we would electronically send out to all staff a 10-question quiz, and we would do that in conjunction with raffles of $50 Amazon gift cards. The more people that participated in the quiz process, the greater the number of cards that would be awarded randomly. So in crafting the quiz, we partnered with our colleagues in the IT department so that we had a quiz that was easy to use and quickly responded. So in other words, if I answered my questions, I was getting an immediate answer back to let me know which questions I answered correctly and which ones were not correct. And if there were any of those, what was the correct answer? We also realize, you know, people that are providing clinical services are so incredibly busy. A 10-question quiz might sound like not very much to people that are not patient-facing employees of the health center, but that's, it's really challenging. So one way to really engage staff is to say, hey, you're busy. Maybe you don't want to do the 10 questions. Maybe you don't like quizzes like that send us a question. If you send us a question, that will count and your name will go into the raffle pool. 
So as we got this information back with the responses that came in, either to the questions that we had given staff or the questions that staff sent us, we used this information as we developed the compliance work plan for the coming year. Because again, compliance week is in November. So we were well into the planning for the next calendar year. It gave us information about HIPAA to build into our work plan. And if there were certain issues where we felt we needed to have a really focused HIPAA training, that we could plan that as well. Also, in terms of general readiness for the Office for Civil Rights, you want to make sure you've got an up-to-date inventory of your health center's business associate agreements. Back to the thought about orientation. We developed a confidentiality and responsibility agreement. So that's just a really easy one-page document, which we used with all of our new staff so that they understood what the boundaries were around protected health information and, and PII. And we let staff know, again, how to reach the privacy officer or the compliance officer. But this form is one that you don't just want to have with the staff that I refer to as your newbies. You want to make sure that this information has been given to every employee of the health center. And I will say that, believe it or not, I suspect your health center could have folks who have worked with you since prior to the HIPAA privacy and security rule being released, believe it or not. There are incredibly dedicated people at federally qualified health centers, some of whom have made the health center, their life's work. They may have been at your organization for over 25, 30, in some cases, 40 years. You want their sign off on this document as well. You want to make sure that this form is retained by the human resources department so that it's on file for every employee. You also want to look at your online HIPAA training requirements. I realize many organizations use online training for HIPAA privacy. And certainly where I came from, we did that. But you really want to look at what the potential offerings are. And maybe you need to think about adding something in. So if, in fact, your, I'll call it main training module doesn't talk about social media, that is incredibly important information for the modern world in which we all live and work in. So you really want to look at what the HIPAA privacy online training requirements are. Another thing which I used with our compliance committee was I would graph the monthly statistics from the Office for Civil Rights, where the Office for Civil Rights posts the number of breaches that have taken place that involved 500 or more patients. That information is public information. You can draw that down every month. And I think it's important because you can look at that to see were there any federally qualified health centers that sustained such a breach or were there breaches that took place in your state in which your health center is based. I think by presenting that to your colleagues on your compliance committee, it can really open the door for questions, concerns. Um, it's, it's, a great, it's a great way to stimulate conversation. Well, Robin, you have provided so many great 
ideas for um, FQHC and and dare I say almost any compliance officer in any care setting of things to think about for um, enhancing their HIPAA compliance program, items to add to their compliance work plan. There's really something for everybody here. So as we uh, begin to wrap up this episode, do you have a few final tips uh, for our listeners? Absolutely. I think one of the things to do is bookmark the HHS OCR website and check that newsroom at least once a week. I think that can be incredibly helpful to a compliance or a privacy officer. You can also remember that the OCR's website also has frequently asked questions sections within the HIPAA for professionals section. That's a great resource. Also, I would suggest that you seek out low-cost training opportunities for yourself or for your team. You want to make sure that you can look at, for instance, your health center's professional development policy to see what sorts of financial supports there are, maybe to train you or to train people in other departments that intersect with HIPAA privacy. And don't forget that there are professional organizations, such as the Healthcare Compliance Association and AHIMA, which offer very low-cost webinars about privacy and information security to non-members as well as members. Also, for federally qualified health centers, your state's primary care association may offer some HIPAA privacy-related webinars. And don't forget your health center's legal counsel. It may be that the legal counsel for your health center has access to some free or low-cost privacy trainings that you can make use of. And again, in closing, I think it's always critical, be timely. Be timely with the review of your policies. Uh, Be timely with making sure that access to clinical records is provided in a timely manner. And Regina, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to chat with you about this today. You're welcome, Robin. And thanks for sharing your insights with our audience. We've reached the conclusion of our discussion. So on behalf of myself and Robin, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We do welcome listener questions and feedback about the topic we discussed in this episode as well as any suggestions for future topics that we should consider developing.